0: After Pearl Harbor, the United States plunged itself into World War II on fronts all over the world. But that precipitating event seemed to demand a response, something our country could do specifically to hit back at the Japanese after their surprise attack. For many people, their knowledge of what the U.S. did for retribution comes from a sequence toward the end of Pearl Harbor, colon, a Michael Bay film. And that's unfortunate, because the story of the Doolittle Raid, as we observed then, isn't only deserving of its own film, it is rightly deserving of many films. And all of them are already on the Friendly Fire list of movies. Don't at me. It's 131 days after the attacks on Pearl Harbor, and it's easy to forget that the Allies weren't always the favorites to win this thing. Morale is low, and what is needed is the strategic equivalent of a moonshot. Can bombers take off from an aircraft carrier? this film interrogates the two elements of Jimmy Doolittle's plan. Whether or not the bombers can fly off the aircraft carriers, and who would volunteer for such a mission. Knowing the odds are against them, the situation is grim, in that they are not going to be turning their bombers around at the end of this and landing on the aircraft carriers, they are going to be landing in China. Ted Lawson is our proxy, and the film is based on his book, We live the experience through his divided attention, through his relationship with his pregnant wife, and with the training and the mission itself, and in both stories, the subtext is sacrifice. Heroism is a tricky thing to depict. Lawson and the rest haven't volunteered for the mission because of ego. They're just normal guys with families and hometowns they miss. They seem to have more affection for their planes than anything else, and they're not even sore at their enemy. I like that the film gives you exactly what's in the title. The mission itself consumes relatively little of the total runtime. Instead, we grow to know and admire Doolittle and his pilots and their training, and in the aftermath of their mission, the tone goes grim right through until the end. They could quit at any time before the mission or after. The rescue of the Doolittle Raiders is complex and despairing, involving the help of Chinese villagers, a couple of British expats, and a lot of luck. The scenes in China, especially, depict the differences in cultures and values very gently. You race for a Jerry Lewis moment, but thankfully one never comes. It's dark. And it's that darkness that saves this film from feeling like total propaganda. Rather than gloss over the aftermath of the mission and the myriad dangers that the crews faced navigating China and trying to get home, The story of the Doolittle Raiders inspires not only because the mission is a success, but because not everyone comes home in one piece. And it's not just physical pain, either. Ted Lawson is not the man he was before the mission in a lot of ways. It may be the Chinese that saved him from the wreckage of his plane, but it's thoughts of his wife Ellen that saves his life in the end. And maybe that's the most significant point that this film and Lawson are trying to share. All of this comes in a film that was released to American audiences during the war. The influence of the Hayes Code is here, sure, the self-mythologizing of the author of the book is here, sure, but it is a pretty complex movie that treats the audience like adults, and that is a really interesting thing to experience, given the context. On today's Friendly Fire, we had to be good if we were going to get such a good-looking listener as we discuss the 1944 Doolittle Raid film, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the grooviest war movie podcast ever to be put down on sizzle platters. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica.
1: I'm John Roderick. I don't get that intro. Did you watch the same movie as us?
0: The guy with all the the quips, you know, the oh, plant the- me now and dig me later guy. Uh, he gives uh, he gives our hero a, a, a tin full of... Uh, Of records before they take off for the big raid and he says right take these sizzle platters. Yeah,
2: is that the same as a as a hot rock?
0: (laughs) No, it's not like something you serve
2: bibimbap in (laughs) This terminology is is folksy and fun.
1: It was the word groovy that threw me off, but I I I know Ben in your like Worldview something from this (laughs) from something from the 60s might as well be something from the 40s Right, it's didn't all say just groovy like groovy in the forties. It's all just like ye oldie, right? Like, yeah, they were writing funiculars and uh, saying groovy and stuff.
0: I don't know, man. I think he said groovy. They, I, think they, I, I think I wrote down something he said. He did. did not, I fuck it
1: up. He did not say groovy. I'm afraid. Who but
0: who is that character again? There ben? are
2: grooves in sizzle platters, are there not?
1: Oh yeah, good point. Sizzle platters do have grooves.
2: Hmm. And so your meat doesn't stick. <laughs>
0: I loved that guy. You did. I loved his whole vibe.
2: That guy was one of the uh, one of the the rare positive people about the outcome of this mission, right?
0: Yeah, and uh, he got that great big bed when uh, when when they got on the on the aircraft carrier. Oh, this is shorty. He
1: he drove me uh, drove me absolutely crazy from the moment he walked on the screen,
0: Lieutenant. <laughs> oh,
1: sorry to hear that. No, no, no. I mean it's it's fine. I'm it's fine for me to be driven crazy by a guy, but. Yeah, boy, he was all ham-boning. And-
2: yeah. I thought you would really like him due to his seeking out and finding the large bed in the Admiral's quarters. I, that I seems like a very that. John
1: Roderick thing to do. It was exactly what I would have done. I would have fought any man to get that yeah. bed, and he just got it out of being irritating. I don't know. The, uh, the, the, the- also
2: also has a resemblance, I think. <laughs>
0: This is the second movie in a row that we've watched that was shot during the war. And this one about an actual thing that happened during the war.
1: Did this movie for me, this movie felt in, in some ways, certainly the first half felt like the oldie timest movie we've watched. It felt like in some ways the oldest, like the, the, the film from the furthest back in time, not just, not the subject matter, but this, the way it was made. I think
0: the oldest movie we've watched is All Quiet on the Western Front, which is 14 years earlier than this. And wow. yet, this film feels more dated in, in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, the the mid-Atlantic accents that they used in All Quiet on the Western Front were weird and out of place. But once we got into it, the movie itself was pretty heavy. But they were using mid-Atlantic accents in this movie. And there was so much Oshuk's oh shucks golly gee. Like, I I was really... I was having a a pretty bumpy ride that first 20 minutes. You know, that guy really means business. He had me sweating a little. Yeah, me too.
2: It feels like the further back you go, the more nakedly propagandistic the the films feel. And maybe... I, I was shocked that this film, in its propaganda, was almost equally serving the idea of being a hero on a mission... And how you will look to your lady friend as reasons to to participate in the war. Like, I don't think we've ever seen a film on Friendly Fire where looking at the soldier through the woman's eyes is so ten out of ten fawning and loving, you know? Like that's such a big part of this story that I wasn't expecting.
0: These ladies are very simplistically drawn I mean they're like all they care about is loving their their guys and having babies basically
2: but for as simple as they are they are they are crucial to the men they are all that the men think about and they are what gets them through the horrors of the aftermath of this mission
0: yeah I was kind of p- trying to I was trying to imagine what this meant to people sitting in a theater in 1944 and that like there it it really moralizes the idea of like being a good girl and and staying true to your to your boy while he's overseas or whatever. Yeah. It's a little rough on just the idea of that. Like Ted Lawson is like, you know, he doesn't want to he doesn't want her to know that he lost a leg if if somebody is like bringing news of his death back to the states. Like he wants her to think of him as having been whole when uh, when he thinks he's going to die. That's about him not imagining her to have a sophisticated enough emotional instrument to to deal with something like that.
2: Ted thinks that Ellen believes that she's going to birth a, a child with one leg as a result. <laughs> it's genetics. <laughs> uh, I feel like there were parts of this film that were composite, and that was one of them. I read that... Uh, that doolittle one of the one of the people that flew on this mission uh unsurprisingly came back with some real mental trauma from it. It was not Ted Lawson, but uh Jimmy Doolittle himself ended up visiting with this person and was one of the reasons for for this guy's recovery and his scenes with Ted Lawson are emblematic of that
0: It's really interesting how much. how how hands-on he is toward the end of the film given how like the entire first half of the film he like pulls up in a car shouts a few things at the men and then like drives away or like comes out of a back office and says like three things and then leaves and then somebody else does the presentation
2: is spencer tracy the michael ironside of the 40s because he's sort of (laughs) ironsiding in this film like he's he's badass with a heart of gold yeah spencer
1: tracy was a big star um he was charming because he was sort of every man. He played naturalistically, rather mm. than, and you see that I think in this movie, like he's the one that seems the least like he's acting and the most like just a guy.
2: And there's that hornet's nest right behind him too. Like I don't know how he could act under those circumstances. He's very cool. He's very cool. <laughs> yeah, to the point that this
1: movie is propagandistic. I, I really I I really struggled with what it was propagandizing because the, the movie we watched last, the, the enemy below. No, what was Crash it? dive. Crash <laughs> dive. The movie we watched last crash dive, like the propaganda of like, Hey boys, join up. The Navy's as good as the army type of thing with actually people <laughs> marching and waving flags. There was a lot of,
0: Navy Army backslapping in this movie too.
1: They they made a lot of light of the competition, and everybody ended up congratulating one another. But what it seemed like this movie this movie was propagandizing as much a domestic reality as it was a like a political civic reality. It's a hell of a combination. Like it was trying to it was trying to shape a world for the for the viewers, for the people back home. And you you guys, you mentioned like these, these elements of, you know, a kind of idyllic relationship between a man and a wife where they, where in a way they're kind of perpetually in a kind of cutesy pie uh, reality with each other. Like, like they sleep in separate beds because, because it was the time, but also just sort of like.
2: Ellen sleeps smiling. Yeah, Which is it a thing I've never experienced. <laughs> have you ever been to bed with a woman who's smiling, John? That's I have never been with a
1: woman who smiled, <laughs> and I can't tell whether whether I'm the the common den- common factor in all of that. No smiles, but I you know I didn't see. We we've talked about this a lot, and part of what we do on this show is is watch these movies made in in times ago and try to figure out how much of it is how things were and how much of it is how things how how people at the time were projecting how they hoped things would be or how they wanted it to be mm. and we've seen we've seen i think a lot of movies where we we talked about this pretty early on that that uh, saving private ryan didn't feel accurate to world war 2 because there were all these you know these men that were openly weeping and um using words like groovy using words like groovy they were you know riding around on a unicycle and then we would watch these movies where you know where people were getting shot right and left and they were like come on boys over the top (laughs) and yet and yet that's kind of how they were this wouldn't have played at the time it wouldn't have been a successful movie if these caricatures didn't resonate with people at the time right this this is how relationships looked how people actually talk to one another because it was a realistic movie to the, to the people of the forties for the most part, but it is trying to, I mean, people get injured in this movie. It doesn't romanticize combat exactly. No. And people come, come home all, all I mean, this has got to be one of the, one of the movie, one of the first movies where somebody comes home and they're like, I'm all, you know, I spent like, I spent half this war in a Chinese hospital, with sepsis.
2: I wonder how thoughtful that decision was though because this film was based on Ted Lawson's book and whenever you repurpose a book into a film like you can you can either choose to take or leave whatever's in it but I feel like the the counterpoint to the horror of having a leg amputated is the promise of of a of a beautiful loving wife waiting for you at home. I feel like you need that element so that the film isn't so sad and maintains its ability to, to be propaganda.
1: Right, but that was, that was what was true throughout the war, right? That was true for everybody in every field of combat. You're always pulling some crinkled little photograph of your girl back home out of your wallet and saying...
2: And sometimes that photo matches the other guy's <laughs> photo. That, that's <laughs> awkward.
1: <laughs> but like that G Willikers, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna get back to my girl and she's waiting for me thing... Um, I don't know. We've watched a lot of movies that were, that have been made in the last twenty or thirty years, where all of that is either, well, it's not even parodied. It's just like it's that just doesn't exist anymore. But but the war movies that I watched as a kid, of which this is kind of uh, an example, they were full of that. That was like the that was like basically the way that the way that you could tell who the hero of the story was. That he had a he had a folded up picture of his girl in his wallet. So I, I don't know I can't tell the I can't tell what exactly the propaganda what, what what the angle was what what reality they're trying to create in America in 1943. And I don't think it's as simple as just a you know a submissive wife and a and a and a uh, and a husband that goes to work at IBM every day when he gets home from the war it was a struggle for me to interrogate these characters.
2: I never felt like Ellen was submissive, though culturally she must have been for her time. I think her character in this film is so... There's something about her character that really worked for me yeah. in a way that surprised me. Like, I I I was not cynical about her relationship to Ted. It, if anything... When things got really dark in the film, like I, my mind reached for her the way that Ted's did. Right. Like she was such a shining star in the film. She was so, she was so beautiful in every way that I found her totally affecting.
1: But she kept you alive. She kept
2: you alive through this film. She did. Yeah. (laughs) This is a long movie. I knew she'd be there waiting for me when the credits rolled. Is it, is it possible to make a movie that the
0: Doolittle Raid is a part of that isn't super-duper long?
1: <laughs> Literally, it was 30 seconds over Tokyo. It just seems
2: to be...
0: <laughs> 30 seconds over Tokyo and 2 hours and 20 minutes of other shit also? <laughs>
2: yeah, right. <laughs> there are a number of films made about the Doolittle Raid, but when I was reading about the Raid itself... There, were, there are parts of that story that I don't think have been turned into film. Like, for example, the one bomber that landed in Russia and its crew uh, were kept as POWs because Russia didn't want to start a war with Japan by, by giving back American troops because they were uh. so defenseless on that, uh, on that eastern front in Russia. So what they did is they, like, squirreled them through Iran and then they quote unquote escaped from an Iranian prison. Like that sounds like a great movie. That I don't know if I don't know if it exists. But that's a killer movie. Let's we should write yeah. the screenplay on this show. Yeah. Get it to our agent
0: and, and uh, have have him get Hollywood on the phone.
2: That isn't to say that the mainline A story of the Doolittle Raid uh, isn't great and worth telling. And I think this film does a great job of it. But there's so many elements to this that that could have their own films and maybe. Maybe those films wouldn't be two and a half hours. I mean, once we take off from the
1: aircraft carrier, what has up until this point been a total ensemble piece of what, 25 different people that we know pretty well, all these different pilots, these different air crews, they're all kind of competitive with each other, but it's a fun time. And then we, we
0: this movie is remarkably committed to showing like meetings with the
1: actual number of people who would have been in the meeting, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? 120 people in this meeting. We can see every one of their faces. But then as soon as they take off, we never cut to any other airplane. We never know what anybody else is doing. we
0: yeah, it, it, it turns into the fog of war, right? Like the and, and when they get to China, they're like hearing rumors and, and reports of what happened to the other crews.
1: I mean, would you have liked it better if it had if it had cut to Robert Mitchum's plane and 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 we'd seen we'd seen the various missions of five different crews, or would I mean that would have they would have had to have cut out forty five minutes of of the two characters telling one another how cute they are at the beginning <laughs> in order to fit it in.
2: I think an effective way to communicate loss is by starting with with depicting togetherness. I think that's one of the one of the things that makes the crash so effective is Ted's crew being isolated from the rest of the people that we know and love. And I think without the first half of the, half of the film introducing us to all these people that we really like, that film that part of the film doesn't hit as hard.
0: It also, I think, downplays the the loss because I don't think that. Anybody we really know that well is among those crews that are reported as having been captured by the Japanese. I mean, we meet up with all the kind of main dudes that we meet at the end. Mm -hmm.
1: It's a total suicide mission. The idea that they're going to bomb Japan, encounter no resistance, have the gas to fly to a runway in China where they're going to refuel and then fly over the hump to India or whatever the rest of that plan was it's bananas. Yeah. And yet
0: well and they were expecting a 50% yeah, attrition right. rate too, right? Like
1: <laughs> And and the fact that only 4 people died in the whole raid, is that right? Like the it was an incredible success given I mean, you know, there was some there was some hard hard long walks.
0: But. It's amazing that just the guys on Ted's airplane made it yeah. given yeah. where yeah. they landed in the drink, you know. Like that one guy's b- arms were broken and he, f- and he fucking swam to shore.
2: <laughs> yeah, man, that guy was fucked up. I hope there are no cables
1: hanging under that span.
2: Everyone is so optimistic about their chances given what they've been told is going to be the ratio. And I think it's it's Robert Mitchum's character is the only one that gives that feeling voice. Like he doesn't think it's going to be easy at all.
1: This idea of masculinity as, as it was lived in 1943. Like Doolittle, very pointedly, is shown in this movie four separate times, saying, "If you quit, no one will judge you." Now he's lying.
2: You can't ask that question in a in a packed meeting room.
1: One hundred and thirty st- young pilots in there. That's not Stand how that up works. if you're too yeah. chicken. <laughs> If
2: you're yellow, (laughs) make it known to everybody here assembled. Pull down your pants and show your little wiener to everyone on your way out.
1: (laughs) But you know, that was, it was, it was probably a performance when it actually happened in real life. And it was also a performance in this movie that they made a point to keep going back to. Even though I think everyone knew, and and maybe that's the most propagandistic moment, right? Because everyone in the theater... Watching it knows that no one can possibly back out of this mission because, and not because they're chicken or they would look bad, because they're all so brave and so red blooded.
0: Nobody is afraid to do the th- the scary thing in this. Yeah, movie. nobody's
1: afraid to die, and they and they they waltz into it like, 50 oh, percent of us are gonna die. Hey, eh? wow, well, it's not gonna be me. <laughs> Better bring some cigarettes and sizzle yeah, platters. Sizzle,
0: sizzle platters for the for the Chinese. That guy calls the the cigarettes death nails at one point. Coffin nails. Yeah. Or coffin nails. What? Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in
2: studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co
0: host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that
2: has changed their lives.
1: Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more.
2: Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks Deep Dives into Hot Records.
1: Every Thursday on Maximum Fun.
2: The greater masculinity of the film, like he was never portrayed as the most gung ho guy. If anything, he was like the most sensitive loner guy in the whole crew.
0: He was, uh, he was a, a meek man, but just as into it as everybody else. Yeah, I think.
2: yeah. Thatcher. Yeah, he's he's the guy that escaped unscathed from the crash too, which was. I think he was the lowest
0: ranked guy on the on the on the on the ship right
2: well he he went from i mean early
1: on it seemed like he was one of these world war ii movie guys who had a one note character who was just like Mm. i'm the guy from billings and i always talk about billings i mean like (laughs) not even one note like a like like a like an eighth note
2: you have any friends from montana they are all like that like they they just will not
1: shut up about montana (laughs) like here i am and calling you from billings it's like i know you live in billings jesus (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> the main street in Billings is Minnesota Avenue.
1: <laughs> but, but by the end of the movie, he had become a, he was much more fully fledged. He was caring for all the men. He never mentioned Billings again. Uh, and Guys, I've,
0: I've thought it over and I think I talk about
1: Billings too much. <laughs> you know, as this movie progresses, I'm going to start talking like a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really liked his transformation. And, um, you know, it was a really telling, I thought like kind of a, kind of a gentle and telling moment when they were out on the, on the deck of the, of the aircraft carrier and one by one, every member of the crew just happened to be out for a walk and they were all coming and very sentimentally kind of checking on their plane and they thought they'd be the only one there.
0: I suddenly felt like I was in like a play. Like the way that set looked, it was like felt like I was watching something on Broadway.
2: And that burn barrel was there, and Frank Stallone was singing. (laughs) (laughs) I really did like the crew's relationship to their planes in this film. It was it was hyper hyper realized in a in a way I could really get with.
0: It felt a lot like Memphis Belle, right? Yeah.
1: There were a lot, of, a lot of connections between this movie and Memphis Bell, and I thought it, it really shored up our point that we were making about Memphis Bell that it was kind of a movie out of time. Yeah. Memphis Bell felt like they had watched this movie 20 times and said, let's do that movie. <laughs> but in color. In color with Matthew Modine. Because Van Johnson's a pretty Matthew Modine. It's just that there's nobody in this movie that is You know what? They would
2: never cut a guy's leg off in Memphis Belle. And that was the problem. Like, you were never in any danger of losing a leg in that movie.
1: There's nobody in this movie that stepped forward as a villain, as a cad. Nobody ever became anyone else's antagonist. I mean, that scene where, where Lieutenant Gray, Robert Mitchum, says to Van Johnson you're married to a sweet girl. You should quit. And Van, jo- Van Johnson's great. The greatest line in the movie says, go away. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great put down. Just like, go away. Other than that, there's no real tension between anyone. Nobody's a drunk. Nobody's a, uh, there's not even really any tension with the Navy. And that was very rare. I thought for, for, for any movie we've seen that there's no, there's no frission.
0: It, it hit me when the Chinese villagers showed up when they're stranded on the beach that this is the first time they've even thought somebody they're looking at might be an enemy, but right. then they turned out not to be.
2: Right, then they were friendly too. How hard were you guys recoiling during that moment in a ball of please don't be racist uh, <laughs> paranoia? Like, oof. I, I, like, you look at the year this film was made and I was, I was waiting for this film to turn really awful and and stereotypical it did not do that
0: i was really surprised at the at the i mean i think it, i think it's before the raid starts bob and ted are standing like on the bob on the <laughs> on the bow of the ship and and they're going like i'm not sore at the japanese like, yeah, like they right. seem like
2: nice people like they love their families I don't hate them is something that's said a lot huh? that was a really right.
1: interesting scene really interesting I don't think I've ever seen it in a movie from this vintage I got nothing against them but if we don't get them then they're gonna
0: get us right in the midst of Japanese American internment like it doesn't seem like the like a like a movie that is purely propagandistic doesn't take a moment to pause and affirm the humanity of the enemy
2: necessarily yeah there's some nuance here that i wasn't expecting and like i
0: don't think that the depiction of the chinese characters is great but it's also not totally a caricature either like they're they're sympathetic and they're like i mean the movie is also doing some work to say like like these are our allies and we should love them you know
1: a lot i think that that was a big part of it yeah
2: the guy who asks for chop suey isn't making fun of the Chinese guy. He's like that. The guy who asks is the joke. Right. Right. That scene. It's the
1: only thing he knows. Yeah. <clears throat> there was He's one the moment idiot. in that scene where they're in the, <clears throat> it's kind of a panning shot. It starts on the windows and it moves across the room and you can hear this music that's just like, ding, me, 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 you know, ding, 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 mm-hmm. ding, ding. and it's like, oh no, they're not actually. Yeah doing that and then it pans across and they're listening to a record player that's playing it. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't soundtrack music, you know, like signifying that we're in China. It was actually these guys in in their hospital bed going like, "Listen to this record.
0: Listen to this music. Never would have thought. <laughs> this doesn't quite sizzle the way the music back home does."
2: <laughs> it was an example of how much care was taken of these troops by the Chinese yeah and and there are many scenes of this and when it comes time for for the troops to leave there is real affection and loss with their departure like they are truly going to miss their Chinese counterparts and I felt I felt like that scene was super affecting and surprising for its time Charlie Gold Charlie plan. sure, Charlie, Charlie. friend goodbye Charlie
0: the Chinese are like extremely generous hosts they don't have anything to give and they give everything they have you know yeah like they they wish they had more medicine and more food and more everything to give these guys and and they like really move heaven and earth to like keep them safe and honor the sacrifice that they made and that you know i i would be very curious to hear like what a like chinese historical perspective on this was because this is this is an American film for American audiences to like make the case that these are these are like great allies of ours and and they're j- just as sore at the Japanese as <laughs> as we are or
2: whatever I'd like to know that too because I feel like there's very little chance that America was sophisticated enough to tell the difference like stupid white America. Telling yeah. the difference between Chinese people and Japanese people to the degree that they could favor one over the other because of a film like this. I just sadly don't believe that happened.
0: It's kind of what it seems like it's trying to do, right? Is right, like, yeah. Dr- draw a distinction like uh, so much work has been done to other and and demonize the Japanese, but that's an issue if we're also trying to be friends with the Chinese.
1: yeah. Well, and it followed on the heels of the late 19th century and early 20th century in America. All of the effort was to demonize the Chinese. Right. The Chinese were the ones that were caricatured and, and expelled from cities. And the Japanese were kind of regarded as as um, pretty benign immigrants relative to, like, the threat of the Chinese. And then we had...
0: Well, to f- and that pendulum has totally swung back. Like, there's so much, like, racist language in in like the Western United States about like Chinese uh, like real estate speculation and stuff,
1: which is interesting it, considering that in the late seventies and eighties, it was all anti Japanese because right. they were, their manufacturing prowess was flooding our markets with their cheap little cars and their VCRs. They're going to run mom and pop right out of business.
0: Yeah, all these mom and pop Walkman companies won't be able to keep up. <laughs>
2: what we need is a Michael Keaton movie to yeah, disabuse us of, right. of those feelings, <laughs> right? The
1: The Chinese that we were allied with during the war were not just a uniform group either. There was Chiang Kai-shek, who was, a, was I think, who was meant to be uh, the leader of this particular, the the rebels that we saw within this movie, who was a nationalist and who was fighting Mao Zedong and the communists for control over China. And they put their differences aside to fight the Japanese. But as soon as this, as soon as World War II was over, they went to war with one another. Um, and so even, even, American feeling about what was going on in China. I mean, I think the difference, the difference in, in all of this, and and it's very hard, I think for us to imagine what it was like during world war II. to know that before the war, we already had a very powerful sense that communism was the threat. Uh, Intellectuals didn't, but like within sort of looking at geopolitics, it's like, wait a minute, communism seems not like our friend but then we're allies with with pretty much every communist state throughout this war to defeat fascists but it's a it's not just an uncomfortable alliance because they are asian countries but like we're we're people would be very aware to greater or lesser degree that after this war we were going to have to there was going to be a second reckoning The the communists aren't just going to go back into the bag. And that's true also in this conversation that where we're watching the Chinese in this movie and they're being made to be our friends and we are not racist about them at all. And, and they have been very generous to us and helped our boys. And they are the, they're Chiang Kai-shek's people who we would try and partner with against Mao's people after the war, little streams of of propaganda, I guess is the word we're using for it. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, and and like this movie seems not to overstate how much friends we are with the Chinese because it's got to hedge a little bit for that for that reason, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> like they are real different. Uh, did you understand who those British people were in China?
1: Uh, they were missionaries. But
0: the, yeah, I kind of I was kind of imagining that they might be missionaries, but. I mean, like
1: that was really down. Hong
0: Kong was a was a pretty swinging British colony at this point, right?
1: Yeah, this would have been a long way from there. I, t- I took them to be missionaries. I mean, they might have actually had people. They might have represented real people, but they never tried to. <laughs> they never tried to proselytize. It wasn't like the Union yeah. Gospel Mission,
2: like, oh, you want medicine, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Their utility in the film and the mission is more than necessary. Like, it's required for the soldier's survival. And I don't think enough was made about their relative bravery. I mean, they stay behind when the American soldiers leave, and you know the Japanese are going to come through there in the next day or so. Like, I didn't have a lot of hope for the Parkers. No, they were going to do bad of, things. In terms of the long game here. And, and yet, like, the last shot that we see of them is them basically, like, waving goodbye like like the U.S. soldiers are going off to summer camp or something. Like the tone of that moment was interesting.
1: Yeah, like oh, we're used to it. Yeah, that's yeah. right.
2: <laughs> that really you was really the feeling, need... right? Like, well, you know, yeah. we're going to get it either way. They really they were required as an intermediary between the local Chinese and the soldiers. If they weren't there, I mean, this is a this is a film based on a true story. I just don't know how the US soldiers survive without being able to communicate with the people who were taking care of them.
1: Yeah. Although there was kind of the universal language of that's an infected leg.
2: Yeah. Gangrenous leg <laughs> uh, is a language everyone speaks, right? What's that smell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We saw
1: quite a bit of that, right? The Chinese doctor didn't speak any English and his son translated for him, but there was also just a lot of knowing doctor looks.
2: Yeah. You do not want to be a patient and have two doctors look at each other like that. No. no they're no, around no. you, huh? If you
1: have two doctors in the room, you don't want them looking at each other at all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm going to like my chances of survival a lot better if I can just have one doctor at a time. Right.
1: You guys look at each other in the hall. While you're in here, look at me.
2: One doctor at a time. <laughs>
0: Boy, that uh, the son of the doctor was so cool when he showed up. Like, yeah, jaunty hat and
2: did he have the best suit? suit. Oh man, that guy was like a oasis in the middle of this war. You felt you felt
0: safe the second he he was he was there. He just kept a cool head. He was I was very excited by him. It's
1: the old thing we've seen before too, right? Where somebody somebody in Asia that speaks English. a great relief comes over everyone, right? Or it's a, it's a sign of education and it's a, it's symbolic of,
0: yeah, he's wearing a Western style suit. Yeah.
1: Western style suit. Like he probably went to Princeton or, you know, like he's, but, but it symbolizes all the suit and the, and English symbolizes that he has Western values, which means that he's in favor of democracy and probably has access to bandages. You know, like it's, it's a shorthand for, um, for everything that's familiar, not just like, here's a guy that can translate for us, but like here is a, um, here's an ambassador of, of modernity.
2: We hope to have some medical supplies by the time we reach my father's hospital.
1: This guy had a long career. Wow.
0: I'm looking at, uh, Benson Fong's IMDB page. he, has credits from 1936 through 1986.
2: Wow, fucking great name too, Jeez. Ben Zafong. Yeah. yeah,
0: I admired his swagger.
1: I know he had he had exactly the same kind of panache that you would have, except you would be sweating through all your clothes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing says panache like my uh, my pitted out suit
1: jackets, fanning yourself with a Panama hat.
0: This, like, I, I always say to my wife, like, I, I always like looking at, at leather jackets, but I can't imagine ever wearing one because I would automatically be too hot no matter what the weather was
2: doing. And you'd have to get a job as a bouncer to strip club as soon as you bought it. My,
1: uh, my problem with the, with leather jackets, I've always wanted one. I shop for them all the time. But my feeling about them is that if you're going to wear leather jackets, you need to have started when you were 17. Right. You cannot, at age 35, be like, I'm a leather jacket guy now. Like, it's too late. <laughs>
0: no,
2: yeah, I've missed the boat, yeah. for sure.
1: Start when you're 19, and you can wear leather jackets the rest of your life, but you, it's not something you pick up later on in life.
2: You look like someone who just watched The Matrix for the first time. Or somebody who watched, like, season one Seinfeld.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or, I paid what it cost. <laughs> what, what, what was that TV show about the pilots at a
2: small airport?
1: Wings. Oh, yeah. You look like somebody who uh, watched too many episodes of Wings.
2: Yeah, I don't want to look like that. I don't think there's an amount that qualifies as too much episodes of Wings. Yeah. This show's great. Well, guys, uh,
0: I'm glad you brought this up because I have a moment of pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> the leather flight jackets worn by most of the flying personnel in the film were close commercial copies of a military A-2 flight jacket. Authentic military contract A2 jackets had a one-piece back without a horizontal seam across the shoulders. Most of the jackets in the film have a seam across the back.
1: Mm. Oh, uncool. Yeah. It takes a lot more leather to make that seamless back.
0: Yeah, you got to get a big, nice, un- unbroken piece, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I will, I will counter that pedant by saying, <laughs> you can have your military grade A2 The B-25 footage in this movie is the ultimate airplane boner movie. I don't know if I've seen a movie where I had more of an airplane boner for longer.
0: Is this
2: footage of the actual
0: Doolittle raid?
2: So check it out. They intercut actual Doolittle raid footage with miniature model footage, with an oil refinery fire in Oakland footage. There was a refinery fire in Oakland, and the production crew was like, oh, shit, we should fly our B-25s around it and get some B-roll for the film. And they did. And it cut together perfectly. That's
0: awesome. Boy, we just sat up in our seats when they started the actual bombing run because I was expecting it to look
2: so corny. The and miniatures, especially, I thought looked amazing. I don't amazing. know how they... I didn't even notice them. Yeah.
1: They looked amazing. Yeah. It lo- It was like, it was Star Wars level of intricacy of yeah. creating a whole cityscape and then blowing the shit up out of it. It must have been as big as a house, those yeah. miniatures. It was, I mean, the special effects in this movie were incredible, but also that they had access to enough of those airplanes that they could... They could thrash them around like they were doing, and the, the actual doolittle footage I was like I was on the edge of my chair if
2: Couldn't they didn't doctor Strangelove around uh during the flight sequences like shot from inside the bombers, I would say all the airplane sequences would be ten out of ten perfect, but you
1: didn't like the interiors
2: well, I mean, just when you shoot the interior and you see the sky flying past you know on fast forward speed. Um, Adam, uh, not
1: to be a pet ant, but it's not the sky that's flying fast. Oh, Jesus.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, everything is relative, John. For all we know, these planes might be the only fixed point in the universe. That's true.
1: That's true. You make a good point. You know
2: what I mean.
1: (laughs) I was interested. I'd never spent that much time in a movie inside a B-25. And we spend a lot of time in B-17s where the path through the ship is like on a catwalk through the bomb bay Mm -hmm. and on a B 25, it's a smaller airplane and you had to actually get up and like shimmy through a little through a little, uh, kind of duct to get to the back of the airplane. And that was, that was kind of news to me and also seemed way more claustrophobic.
0: Yeah. This is a scary airplane to be in. If, If you need to get somewhere in it quickly,
1: let's say for instance, it's on fire. (laughs) <laughs> and you're in one part of it and want to get to another part of it.
2: Or maybe you've ditched in a body of water near China. Right. In the middle of the night in a rainstorm. Could you fit through
0: that side window that slides open? Is that, is that big enough for a, a man to slide
1: himself through? I bet you could if you had to.
0: What if your arms are both broken?
1: That's maybe how they got broken. Mm. Maybe he had to break his own arms to get through the window. Damn.
2: Wow. That's Whoa. some diehard walking that's, through the broken glass right. shit right that there. That's tough.
1: yippee motherfucker. The movie, like a lot of them we watch, has sort of three acts. And the airplane stuff, the, the actual raid, kind of once they get on the aircraft carrier, you're in a little bit of a different movie. And you wouldn't want them to, because it's a true story, you wouldn't, wouldn't want them to introduce fake drama between characters. You wouldn't want there to be a bad guy because all these guys are real guys.
0: Well, and you wouldn't.
1: You don't want to dis- you don't want to besmirch them. They're all heroes. Yeah. Every one of them's a hero. Uh,
0: apparently the the guys that did the raid really liked this movie and thought it was an accurate tribute to what they had done.
2: Very different review they gave Pearl Harbor.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that's another Why that's is everybody me-
0: so oily? <laughs> Why is John McClane there?
1: What is he doing? He's just walking through. <laughs> <Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. laughs> but the fact that the, that the people that were on the raid watched this movie and said, "Yep, that's kind of how it was," is is another piece of evidence that all this stuff that reads to us as like weirdly
0: well, it's either that's how how it actually was, or that's how they want us to think it was.
1: Well, right, but if it was if it was transparently, that's how they want us to think it was then people at the time. I mean, there were smart people then who wrote smart movie reviews for the New Yorker like that stuff would have gotten interrogated at the time. It wasn't, not everybody was Ozzy and Harriet. (laughs) And in fact, one of the characters in this film was in Ozzie and Harriet and he was Lieutenant McClure. So yeah, and and Van Johnson, of course. The, the like,
2: still frame on his IMDb page is him just tearing into a woman, like like screaming at her. <laughs> oh no, Don! <laughs> Have the estate change that uh, change that picture on your IMDb page, guys. Right. <laughs> There's only so much
1: you can do. Every single time I I ask somebody to put a different picture of me up on Wikipedia because the last one is like me on my heaviest day ever also it was the hottest day of the summer also Mm. you know and i'm also i'm like it's a picture of me choking on a chicken wing the next (laughs) the next picture that goes up is worse
2: somehow they find a worse picture (laughs) that one's got two chicken wings
1: (laughs) it's great cast features van johnson as
2: captain ted lawson
1: you know curious about van johnson who was a huge star in his day um two things at the end of the movie, when we see his face all scarred, those were actual scars yeah and he he worked his whole career basically he he was in a terrible car accident was all and you know his head was all sh- shredded, and he worked in Hollywood for forty more years with these really terrible scars across the top of his head, and they just covered him up with makeup
2: he uh He popularized the Caesar haircut. As a thing, as a result, just combed it right over.
1: But also, he was famously gay. His wife, in her auto, in her autobiography, uh, was like, "Yeah, I was married to Van Johnson. I was basically his beard, and you know, spent my whole life in this loveless marriage that was crafted by the studios to camouflage their big star."
0: Whoa. Whoa. I think this is the first film I've seen him in.
2: Did you guys see the serial commercial I sent you? He stopped acting for quite a while and then popped up like I think it was twenty years after his last movie credit, pops up in a serial commercial wherein he's filming a movie in the commercial in a in a mock up of a B twenty five cockpit, talking about <laughs> uh how the uh the the flakes he eats and his breakfast cereal bowl are uh, are all he needs to get him through a day of shooting.
1: <laughs> Post fortified oat flakes really stays with a guy. This morning is going to take me to Tokyo and back. I missed the stakes outside of the major stakes. Right,
0: you're never wondering is is he going to. Be true to his girl, or right. are is he going to overcome the the bad boss?
1: Or right?
2: Well, hold on a second. I until they took the leg, I I was rooting against that and bracing for it at the same time. Like bracing that, that for felt...
1: him to to not survive, or that he was going to keep his leg. Uh,
2: either outcome, uh, either of the three possibilities, I thought.
1: Well, and for sure, the hardest thing I think for a modern audience to understand is. His fear that his young wife would reject him without a leg. And we have have made so many cultural and like uh, architectural accommodations for people with disabilities in our own time that it's kind of inconceivable to think like, oh, this person's missing a leg. Well, they're useless. Like they're just excluded from polite society. And anytime they would walk into a room, everyone would stop talking and look over at their missing leg. Because of course, back then there would have been a lot more amputations. There wasn't any antibiotics, right? There would have been a lot more injury. And
0: there um, must've been like a whole generation of people coming back from world war one with amputations too. Right?
1: Right. But I, but there was also that, there was so much prejudice against anyone that wasn't able-bodied, you know. That, that I think it really was true that, that it was possible that you would be sidelined. And
0: oh, I think it's still possible. I mean,
1: <laughs> well, right, but I mean, like, like just sidelined out of your own family. Like your wife would just go, "Oh, I, I, I didn't sign on for this. I married a, I married a man with two legs."
0: Yeah, the character is modeling the ideal behavior in a situation like
1: this. And then what's crazy is that she is going through this thing of like I'm pregnant now, and maybe he won't love me because I ha- because I look like a pregnant girl.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll carry my coat over my belly.
1: Yeah, it's just like, but those were those were real, uh, real fears until not very long ago, and probably as you say, Ben, real fears for for people even now, although not you know not in your incredibly woke
2: subculture. How about Jimmy Doolittle going around Ted to make sure Ellen's at the hospital?
0: Why is my culture... (laughs) What the fuck are you talking about?
2: Oh, it just sizzled there in the pot. It was just like... I just
0: sizzled right there on the platter.
1: Sizzling platter.
0: I watched a a reality show about a guy that had a cyst on his nose and his girlfriend dumped him yesterday. Wow, really? Dr. Pimple Popper. Check it out.
1: Oh, no. I'm well aware. Did did you, were you somebody that used to go on YouTube and watch pimple popping videos?
0: Used to. <laughs> I didn't stop.
1: Uh, There's they're such a stress reliever.
0: Yeah. It's my ASMR.
1: But when Doolittle said, we're not going to um, kick you out of the military, like you're going back to work, Lieutenant One Leg, that in and of itself was like a, you saw his face brighten like. It was a, it was a bold move on his part. And it's true, right? Those, he went back to work in the war.
0: I thought it was interesting the moment when like word gets around that, oh, Jimmy Doolittle's a Lieutenant Colonel now. And he's like putting something together. <laughs> like really good for him. You know, like, is it like, was he, was he famous as like a great pilot before? I, I mean, I know him for the Doolittle raid because of the great film Pearl Harbor, but
1: well, yeah, I mean, these guys, so for instance, that scene early on, or it's, maybe it's the first scene in the movie, where, um, where Doolittle is in, a, in the office of a general, and they're, they're yeah. putting this whole thing together. Like, Doolittle was already famous, but that general he was talking to was, I, I presume, and I'm pretty sure, was Hap Arnold. The guy that invented that, not just the Air Force, but like, like he, he was taught to fly by the Wright brothers, Hap Arnold.
0: That's a pretty good pedigree.
1: Yeah, right. And uh, like he and Billy Mitchell basically started the idea of flying in the army and. The
2: Wright brothers were like, we've invented a way (laughs) to fly to Japan and bomb it. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. Well, it's the, yeah, it's exactly. It's like,
1: hey, we put a bicycle together and we can fly through the air. And the next guy's like, can uh, you drop a bomb out of it? <laughs> but so, so Doolittle and Arnold uh, and uh, and Mitchell, like they all would have been. I mean, the the airplane they're flying in is the B twenty five Mitchell, named after. Mitchell. So they were, these were like legendary people. And Hap Arnold's career is, is crazy. Like they basically invented the air force and he was like the first general of it.
2: Had the air force existed at this time, it would have been an air force mission. Yes. And the Doolittle raid was one of the inspirations for its, its necessity.
0: When was the air force made into its own branch of service?
1: Right after World War Two, you know there are all these different ways airplanes are used. There's strategic bombing in World War Two. There's like fighter, both fighter support of bombers and also just dogfighting fighters out there, like um, like like little planes with with the that are just strafing railroads and stuff. There's there's infantry support. There are carrier wars. I mean, there airplanes are getting used in so many different ways. And yeah. there was an acknowledgement like, oh, we need like an air branch. But as soon as they put an air branch together, the Navy was like, well, we're <laughs> we're not giving up our airplanes. And the <laughs> Army said, yeah, us either. I mean, we'll, and the, you know, all the helicopters are all Army. And so the Air Force was like, great, well, we'll do the bombing and the fast jets. And the Navy was like, nah, we'll keep
2: some fast jets. And space. When we get there.
1: Oh, and space, right? Except half the astronauts are Navy pilots.
2: Interesting.
1: So, and the competition continues, right? I mean,
2: I mean, we see competition among branches in this film, like Navy versus Army, is begins a little, a little icy, like, and it's and it's Lieutenant Miller that starts it off, right? Like it's Doolittle that yields to Miller for the training, right? And Miller did so much for the for the for their chances of success that he was named an honorary Doolittle Raider, even though he didn't go out on the mission. Really? Yeah. I Really love the Miller character. I thought he was cool. Force Beetle type situation for Miller.
1: (laughs) I expected there to be a lot more failure on the part of the pilots trying to get their planes off the ground in 500 feet. And it was like we saw one scene where yeah. they were just starting out, and they went down, and they couldn't do it. And then almost immediately, everybody was able to do it.
2: You get that right. one tail strike, and that's it. I think Pearl Harbor did a better job of showing failure in this scene than this film.
1: Yeah, it must have been harder to to get those planes to pull that mission off than was depicted here.
0: It's all tell and no show. Like, they they show three planes not quite doing it, but, like, when they talk about it, it sounds insane. Like... Get it all like revved all the way up, then like, you know, release the, release the parking brake and just go as fast as you can with, with the, with the flaps down. And like part of knowing whether your plane is ready is just like what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. The instruments can't even really tell
2: you. Fucking it's- Ted takes off with his plane, not in, in takeoff configuration either. Like he takes off flaps up. Yeah. <laughs> gotta go through the checklist Ted and they yeah. showed it right he went off the end yeah. of the boat
1: in it and he and it did that uh it did that Top Gun thing where the plane disappears wow. below the deck
2: yeah that was scary
0: stuff it actually caught my breath I was totally terrified when that happened I mean like it's it's so crazy like we've watched a million of these films you know that Ted is gonna at least make it to the to the raid but when, when he dips below the, the edge of the deck, you're like, oh,
1: there,
2: there, <laughs> there they go. <laughs>
0: Probably have to finish this movie with Bob's plane or something.
1: <laughs> oh, the weirdest message in the movie was that whole thing of, like, my engine's misfiring. And then Doolittle standing there, and he's like, is your plane okay? And he's like, uh, yeah. And then we meet, yeah. The, yeah. we meet the guy who was like, I told him that there was a light bulb out in the, in the galley, and I'm grounded. And it was just that, that poor guy. He just instinctively in the galley where knew where
0: they keep the uh, Cokes and yeah, right. salted peanuts.
1: <laughs> right. Like in the bathroom the sink was you know had a knock and I'm out of the mission. Yeah. And it was it was that was an interesting message to send to a wartime audience. Look if your things broken keep it to yourself.
0: <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> keep it running. Yeah, I didn't quite understand what motivated uh him not to report that his inner intercom was not working.
2: I thought it was his affection for his plane and not wanting it to be pushed overboard or something. Right? And then
0: and then it's just working later. Yeah. So, who knows?
2: It was a real, like, that engine misfire thing was a sort of Damocles that was, like, always hanging. Like, and, and affixed firmly. Like, it was never going to fall. Yeah. <laughs> like real real sturdy sword because that's because
1: that's where that's why they were so messed up right the engine cut out right as they were trying to make their emergency landing like we got our
2: we got the payoff such a long journey though like i I kept expecting (laughs) another misfire tough stuff For every film on Friendly Fire, there is a corresponding and custom rating system used to review it, and 30 Seconds Over Tokyo is no different. There was not just one object that I think makes the best rating system, but a pile of objects. There's a scene (laughs) in uh, the officer's club dance during the training and I think it represents the anonymity of the soldiers during wartime. It's a hat pile. So Everyone good. Everyone goes to the dance, throws their hat on the pile, and gets on with the dancing. And I think this is a thing that thematically ran through the entire film the feeling that you were together but alone. Like you're all in a squadron, but really, all you've got is your plane and the people wow. on that plane.
0: The, uh, the Adam Pranica Cinema Studies paper about the pile of hats.
1: Oh, the pile <laughs> yeah. of hats, a symbol that you're together but alone, always alone. Right? It's just like the podcast pile of hats. Guys, yeah.
2: read read all the way to the end of the eighth page, okay? There's a lot of good stuff there. Wait a minute, your thesis is only eight pages long? Uh, film studies papers that I wrote were between eight and 12 pages.
1: Mm, that explains why you're a working filmmaker.
2: Fuck you.
1: In this movie, you will notice there is many movie makings. <laughs> Signed, Adam Planck.
0: Webster's defines film.
2: Are you done? <laughs> Sorry, back to your hat pile. Save, save the teasing for my guy. It'll be more appropriate then. Uh, There were a lot of things to like about this film, a lot of things that I liked, and I think most especially was that feeling, but also like how direct the characters were about their chances of death. Ellen and Ted especially talk in great detail about Ted's chances of not coming home, and Ellen directly saying, like, hey, I've got your baby, so a little part of you will live on, like to his face. And that is... (laughs) Like there's an affection there, but it's also like a cold sobriety to their circumstances that I just don't recall experiencing in films of this era. And it made me like it a lot. Um, I thought the bombing sequences, and we said this before, were just fantastic. Like best in breed bombing sequences, like shot from a variety of angles and intercut together in such a way that that really looked great. Um, And I really liked the depiction of the Chinese in this film, which had many opportunities to go to, like, take a right and then go into a ditch of being shitty and problematic. But, uh, But Charlie, especially, was, like, one of those characters who was so kind and caring and not a caricature. Like, that moment where the children sing the national anthem in Cantonese, I thought, was affecting and good and and would have been like in a film that didn't have such a great grasp of its own tone would have been a laugh part of the movie but it really worked here I thought the whole film really worked its runtime was maybe the thing that cut against it but I think if you're gonna tell this story in the three chapters that we described not a ton of fat on it I'm going to give this film four hat piles. <laughs> wow. What about you, Ben?
0: Um, Yeah, I, I, I really liked it. I think that it needs an edit. You know, I think that you could cut 30 minutes out of this movie and have a better movie on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I knew why they wanted to keep everything in that they kept in. It made sense to me that they wanted to show all of these different angles and i felt the kind of like sincere earnestness that the filmmakers were bringing to the messaging in it but i think it's it's it really suffers for its length and um what could be like a a really like rip-roaring adventure movie with a pretty amazing climactic moment and then uh, a pretty harrowing denouement uh Winds up, winds up feeling pretty slow. Like I don't, I don't know that I would give a full throated endorsement to somebody that hadn't seen this movie. Like it's not a run out and watch this, right? To me, Je- like I would say if, if you're curious about the actual Doolittle raid, like fast forward to that part and watch that because it's fucking awesome. But uh, you know, just in terms of like the accomplishment of the filmmaking in it, but um, overall, I, I. I don't love the movie, so I'm gonna give it uh three pilo hats.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I agree with with both of your comments. Um and I think I'm I think I'm closer to Ben on this one. The story, which after we watched Pearl Harbor, we were like, just make a movie about the doolittle raid. This we didn't need this extra two hours. Yeah. And now we're here at a movie about the doolittle raid, and I still don't feel like
2: and they pearl harbored the shit out of it, huh? <laughs> well, a little, a, a little bit
1: less, but I think all the things they were trying to accomplish, which is, you know, we, we get inside the relationship between Lawson and his wife and we understand like how she's going to keep him alive later on in the film. And we understand why. Uh, but we could have gotten there a lot faster. There could have been more training montage. It felt like the, or it could have been more montaged. The, the time that we spent on the aircraft carrier was, you know, there was, it was okay. It was fun, but it wasn't like strictly necessary. I would have much rather have spent more time in the air. And then this the geography of the escape through China got a little bit of a short shrift at the end. Like we didn't really ever see them make the full journey, which in and of itself would have been pretty interesting. I mean, they were all screwed up and, uh, and Lawson had one leg and somehow they went from central China back to good old USA. And it's not even, we it's not even hinted at how that, how that went down. <laughs> um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't dislike it. And I think it, it's, it's a movie that it's a movie to watch. If you're interested as much in trying to figure out what it was like to be someone in the forties, you know, these movies, this is not, not the first one that we've seen where there's a feeling that some of a part of the way this movie is being made is that it's trying to get women to go to the movies. And so it's not just a bunch of boys hot dogging around a a playing, you know, like a, a, an airport, but they're, they're strong female leads and, you know, they're confined as to what they can do by the time, you know, their, their strength is all in arranging tulips on the, on the table and telling their men that they're, They're praying for them or whatever, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch because of that stuff. And then the raid is just phenomenal, but I can't go above three, three hat piles.
2: I think we started to articulate something earlier that I want to interrogate just a, just a little bit more, which is there is a version of a friendly fire movie that we recommend as a run out and see it. This film is amazing kind of film. And then there's a film like this, which I think belongs in a conversation about war films, and then under that, World War II war films, and then under that, The Doolittle Raid. Like, Absent a better film about The Doolittle Raid, I think this is the one to watch. Yeah. So far. Yeah. I just don't want to... You guys have good reasons why it's a three-hat pile film, but I don't want to dismiss it for that i think it's i think it has value even though we aren't super excited about it
1: yeah i agree and and there are people listening to our show who watch every movie with us and i don't think they're going to be disappointed there are people who listen to our show only when we record inglorious bastards and starship troopers Mm-hmm. And they are not. They're not making, listening right now. <laughs> so they're we can not. Talk who, shit! That's right. We're not making the show for them. And then there are people I think who listen to the show who really don't see any of the movies, except for ones where we're like, "You have to go watch this movie because it's going to rip your heart out." Um, and this isn't this isn't one of those. This is like if I think the people that are going to watch this movie are the ones that are watching every movie with us, and they are going to be an educated class of film goer, above and beyond probably. What anybody else would be outside of uh, the three of us, or Ben and me at least, Adam's still working on his (laughs) freshman year term paper.
2: Those (laughs) listeners are definitely my guy, (laughs) those that listen to and watch all the movies. But who is actually your guy, John? Well, my guy.
1: There's a scene kind of early on when the 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 there are three wives sitting on a beach. (laughs) Swim said, "The mama fishy swim if you can." Uh, three wives sitting on the beach and one of them is, uh, is married to the captain, Captain York. Uh, and she's kind of the more of the three of them. She's kind of the more motherly or she's, you know, she seems like, well, her husband's a captain, first of all, not a lieutenant. So she's a little bit older. And, um, our heroine, uh, Ellen Lawson, the three of them are sitting there dishing and a plane flies by and and Ellen goes "Oh it's van or it's uh, it's ted he's 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 strafing the beach for me and um and Mrs. York says, "Oh, I remember when my husband used to used to uh buzz the beach for me, but as you get a little bit older, you know they knock it off and there's a third woman there who I think was just like I don't, I don't know exactly who she was, which wife she was. She's credited only as Jane, uh, but it's put portrayed by the actress Dorothy Morris. And as the other two women are talking about their idyllic marriages, and then, um, and then Ellen reveals that she's pregnant, and then uh, Ski York's wife, Mrs. York, Emmy York, s- reveals that she's also pregnant. The third gal is just kind of like you can just tell that she is not a dutiful pregnant wife waiting for her man to get back. no one is going to survive the war feeling like Jane is home waiting for them. Jane <laughs> might be married to a pilot and might be home waiting, but she's got a, she's got a lot of I guess what you would have said at the time was spunk. She's got a lot of spunk and uh, she's just, I immediately identified with her. She is the one that I would be married to. She is the one that was like, you guys are pregnant.
2: Weird. Jane sort of darkly foreshadows something later by going on and on about how great it is to have a man with two feet and like rubbing them <laughs> and uh, and all that. Oh, like Ellen, my, is, Ellen is like, I get it. It's Jeez. my man's
1: <laughs> second foot that really yeah. makes it. <laughs> anyway, I just immediately like of everybody in the movie, I just felt the most like she and I had a future together. Yeah. She was a little dark. Yeah. She was a little bit contemptuous of the other wives while also still somehow not finding other friends. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. That you are not (laughs) pregnant is one of the main things about you, John. Well, that's right. That's right. Still
1: not pregnant after all these years.
2: (laughs) Not for lack of trying. (laughs) Uh, My guy is the pilot on the C 47 flight home. The one that ferries Ted back to the mainland. And I think the kindness that he shows Ted in that moment about like hey, go ahead and take the yoke, man.
1: Oh, wasn't that sweet?
2: if you don't mind, I'll work the rudder yeah but, exactly uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the uh the part that I mean the part that kind of took me out of the movie was like he opens up the window and he's like. I can smell America. <laughs> <laughs> you know it is the loudest place in the world when that window is open and he's like having a a whisper quiet conversation with Ted. But uh yeah. like that moment was funny, but the kindness was not funny. The the kindness in that scene was sincere and he had just a brief moment in the film, but that uh the pilot fraternity that we get in this film, we get it so much, but maybe not any better than that scene, so he's my guy.
0: It's too bad podcasters don't have that
1: same kind of fraternity.
2: Yeah, we hate each other. Oh, Fucking I don't know. I get along jets. pretty well with the
1: McElroys. You could never <laughs> fly my plane. Come on, you'd let me fly your get in the he'd, he'd get me in the fly back one legged in your plane, wouldn't you?
0: <laughs> John, we've been to live shows of other podcasts of yours and gotten dunked on from the stage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You'll get dunked on from the stage at our own podcast.
0: I know, but it feels like a little bit different when I'm I'm in a position to participate in the conversation.
1: Than when you're sitting in the audience having paid for your ticket?
0: Right. Hey, look at that guy. (laughs) There because I'm a fan and then (laughs) turned into an object of ridicule.
1: Ah, yes. It's the fraternity of podcasts. We just discussed it.
0: Part of the problem is that you, you pick exclusively crazy people as your podcasting partners, us mm. being no exception, yep uh my guy is the uh there's that first big meeting with doolittle it's one of these one of these meetings where they've got like three super long tables with hundred and twenty people sitting around them, and uh Doolittle comes out and there's just like one of the guys in that meeting is wearing sunglasses. <laughs> It's like, what is that guy doing wearing his sunglasses inside like he's the coolest kid in school? That was your guy? That was my guy. (laughs) The coolest kid in school. Yeah. I admire his panache.
2: Pretty aspirational guy, Ben. Yeah.
0: Leather jacket and sunglasses? If only I'd seen this movie when I was 19.
2: Well, you know what I'm hoping for, fellas, is a cool movie up next. Cool like wearing sunglasses, cool. What do you think it's gonna be? Are you near your dice, John?
1: Oh uh, yes. <clears throat> Here's what my dice sound like now. Are you ready? Gonna roll the roll the hundred sided dice. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks like it's eighty-eight,
0: number eighty-eight. 88 is a movie from 1985 by Elam Klimov. Mm-hmm. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Set in Belarus during Uh-oh. World War II. Uh-oh.
2: It's a movie called Come and See. Uh-oh. Cool. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> wow. Uh, this is a film that I've heard about. Yeah. In the context of like... Uh, Requiem for a dream style conversations like have you seen this movie right have you seen like as as challenge movies go
1: this is a this is a tough movie I think we've we've watched a few tough movies in our in our podcast and I think this is in the category of um, not really I think you would you would have to put your pork chop aside Uh, I think we're gonna have to it's gonna be a little bit of a, a rough go.
2: I think by by virtue of its reputation alone, this movie might not be for everyone. So if you are someone who uh, attempts to watch all films and has struggled up until now with a few of them, uh, this might not be the this might not be the one for you. Yeah, maybe. Um,
0: this movie is available in its entirety in SD in a couple of places. It's on YouTube, and it's on Voodoo, but it's not on a lot of the other streaming services. So uh, so also keep in mind that this is not like the, the prettiest presentation of a film. But uh, yeah, I think, it's, I, think, I think it's one we don't want to miss,
1: right? Don't think there's any fun part of it. Right. To be clear, we'll be the fun part. We're going to be the Listen fun part. Listen to the show. Oh, the show will be amazing. Yeah, but this is kind of like that. Uh, it's a fires on the plane style uh, film where where where, the, where war is depicted maybe more more accurately than say for instance
0: nobody's gonna be shaking a leg to sizzle platters <laughs> no. All right, well, that'll be next time on Friendly Fire. Uh, We'll let Rob's take it from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler
1: alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate to join the squad. You can get all of the bonus content from Maximum Fun by donating, as well as our monthly Pork Chop episode. When posting about the show on social media, please
2: use the hashtag friendlyfire. Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at Benjamin AHR. Adam is at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick.
1: And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week.
2: Whenever I need to barf and I can't, I reach for my barf medicine. (laughs) Ipecac gets me through the morning. Maximumfun.org